Hi everyone, Steve Preda here again with the Succession Secrets podcast. And today's episode number 76 is titled Pick One You Trust and Trust Him. Welcome to the Succession Secrets podcast, where you can grow, groom, and graduate from your business in just seven minutes a day. And now here is your host, Steve Preda. Welcome back, Succession Seekers. Today, I'd like to talk about selling your business and one particular aspect of selling your business, which is picking an investment banker and how to use that investment banker. And as many of you know, I am formerly an investment banker. I was formerly an investment banker for probably 15 years. And uh, first, I worked for a big bank, uh, a big investment bank, and then I left and founded my own boutique firm and I built that up and eventually I sold it when I moved to the United States. And uh, one of the big uh, lessons I had as an investment banker that the best clients that we worked for were the ones that really trusted us, fully trusted us, didn't second guess us and let us do our job. And uh, and this is such an important lesson that I want to share this with you, our faithful listeners, my faithful listeners, because that can really make the difference between a successful sale at a high price and, uh, and, and in, with a good momentum and a sale that never happens, that fails, or which eventually doesn't get, uh, doesn't realize its, uh, its optimum potential. So, let me give you a couple of examples. First, let me speak with, speak to you about a deal that didn't work out. And this was a very painful experience because this would have been uh, by far the biggest deal that we had. We would have made well over a million dollars on it in fees. And, and it would have been a fantastic deal for the sellers too. And this was back in 2006 or seven. I can't remember which, and we were uh, representing a big construction company, a big civil construction company, which was growing by leaps and bounds, and they hired us to bring a buyer on board because they felt that uh, this was the right time for them to sell the business. They had some political connections, which really helped them, and they were also quite uh, astute business people. Actually, two people owned the company. One of them was uh, a kind of an in- a financial investor formally but he had good political connections the other one was uh, was the ceo of the company who was essentially the strategic construction guy in the business but both of them were relatively young and they basically built this business up they actually acquired several businesses they merged them and then they had this portfolio of services and portfolio of assets that they could use for clearing riverbeds which was quite a, quite a unique activity that they and they didn't have too many competitors with with these kind of assets and then they also had some licenses to do disaster recovery work in case of floods which was very lucrative work it wasn't uh, a very uh, regular work so sometimes a couple of years went by without a major flood and then they the, the assets that they had were just sitting idle but they could use the people elsewhere but in good years they could use those assets and they could make huge margins on those jobs. And essentially, they had a quasi-monopoly situation because they had this special license. So anyway, they asked us to, to find a buyer and uh, we found 
Abaya, which is a major French construction company, one of the top three construction companies in France, which was the equivalent of the top three, almost the top three in the world, the top two in the world. French companies were the top two, top two of the three companies in the world were French. And this is one of them. And, and they came and they looked at the company. They liked the company. They made an indicative offer and the offer was negotiated. Eventually we agreed the price and then came the due diligence. And during the due diligence process, the company got a bunch of new contracts and eventually the, uh, the sellers decided that they were not going to sell it at the price that it was agreed. We went back to the buyer and we renegotiated again and they, they raised the price. So we went on a couple of months uh, passed because of negotiations. We had a binding offer, which was after the renegotiation, which was accepted. And then we went into contract negotiations and the company kept growing and they kept looking at getting new contracts all the time. And and basically, the seller said again that, hey, we want to renegotiate the price. So we went back again, and the buyer was very upset, but we renegotiated the price. And uh, we went to Paris. There was a big, big dinner. They put up a big show. We had we shook hands with some important people at the company. And eventually, everyone agreed that this price is going to be the price at which we do the deal. So we went into the final closing week. This was just before Christmas. And the night before the closing... We had an, a meeting in the afternoon from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. And then the buyers flew in. We were going to have dinner together with the buyers. They flew in from Paris. And uh, so we sat down at 1 p.m. to discuss the final terms. And again, one of the sellers decided that they were not going to do this deal. They want a better deal. So it was very, very uncomfortable. But eventually, us as investment bankers, uh, we agreed that, okay, we tried to do this negotiation, but it looked like it was imp- going to be impossible because the gap was huge. So we went out for dinner and we basically spilled the beans. We said we want a new deal, even though the closing was scheduled for the day the ne- day after. We want uh, to have a new deal. They were totally upset. The dinner basically finished without result. And then I persuaded the group to go over to have some drinks. So we went over to a nightclub. So... After all that discussions, by 2 o'clock in the morning, we finally agreed a new deal. And it was a very difficult thing to broker, but eventually we agreed. So we went home and we had the 9, 9 a.m. meeting the next morning. So next morning, we were in, in the, off, we were in the uh, conference room with a bunch of lawyers. There were six to eight attorneys around the table, accountants. Everyone was there. The papers were all printed. The attorneys worked through the night to update the papers for the new terms. And, and then basically we didn't have, we didn't have the seller. The, the seller wouldn't show up. And we understood the night before that one of the sellers were going to fly out that night because they had some important meeting in Italy and they were going to leave and we are going to, but he left power attorney for the CEO to sign all the papers. So the CEO wouldn't turn up wouldn't show up. And then I called the CEO and he said that he was running late and he was not sure because he's, they still had some conditions that they wanted to negotiate. So, oh my God. So eventually he turned up uh, an hour and a half late. It was very embarrassing. We had the one of the uh, C-level executives of the world's biggest, one of the world's biggest construction companies. 
at the table. And so he showed up and he said that he wanted a bump in his salary by a hundred percent bump in his salary. So it was kind of an outrageous proposal, but, but the buyer really wanted to buy. So we haggled a little bit about it and eventually they said, okay, we're going to do that, but the shareholders will have to pay for this salary equally. And he asked, what do you mean? Well, we're going to be 51-49% shareholders at the outset until we buy you out, said the buyer. So we are going to pay for 51% of that salary increase, but you guys will have to pay as remaining 49% shareholders the remaining part of the salary. So then the CEO said, no, I cannot agree to that because my partner is not here and, and I cannot agree. I cannot make this commitment for him. We agreed, he and I agreed that, that we would only do the deal if I get the salary increase, but I cannot get my, my partner's approval. At that point, the buyer was totally upset, totally, they were outraged and basically stood up and they walked out. So I was totally uh, devastated, obviously, because we were going to have a huge closing, a huge fee, the best deal in the history of the company. We had been working for over a year on this deal. And it was go. It, it looked like it's, it's falling apart. So, over the weekend, I actually figured out that if I accepted the cut in my fee, a substantial cut in the, my fee, then we could actually close the gap between the buyer and the seller without them having to make either of them having to make any concession. So I called the buyer, who at this point seemed to be no. I actually I called the sellers, and I told them my plan. And I said, hey, we can do this. I called, no, first I called the buyer and they said that they would be open. They were going to be open to this suggestion. So I called the seller and then the seller said, no, we are, what do you mean? Uh, you are going to cut your fee. We were not going to, we are not going to pay your fee anyway. We're going to screw you on this deal. So what do you mean you cut the fee? It doesn't mean us, anything to us. It's not a concession to us. We're not going to do this deal. This is too sweet for the other part. So he so he hung up. So the deal was gone. Luckily, we had a good year otherwise. So I didn't have to jump into the River Danube and uh, commit suicide. Uh, so it was an okay year. It was a painful loss. But what happened afterwards was really interesting. After that deal fell apart, the buyer sued the seller. Unfortunately, to the buyer, the seller had a really good attorney that I referred to them who actually defended them, even in an undefensible situation. So they never got any money. They actually ended up having to pay the legal costs for this thing. But what happened to the buyer was much worse than what happened to the seller. Because three years after this deal fell, out, fell apart, the company, actually the company, after the deal fell apart, the company stopped growing. They didn't materialize some of the contracts that they thought they were going to. And then there was a political change, a change in government, and the company went bankrupt three years later. And the shareholders lost everything. They would have made a huge amount, many millions of dollars. They ended up with nothing. And the company went bankrupt and it went out of business. So that was, that was a situation, an example where, where the seller got too greedy. They wouldn't listen to the investment bankers and they pushed the deal too far. And then they, they pay the price. So let me give you an example when the seller did, did listen to the investment banker. And this is what I think should be the norm. 
we were representing a pharmaceutical company and we had an Italian buyer that came came to, to the country uh, to do a deal and they were a stock exchange listed company and they were very eager to consolidate that, that particular business in, in, uh, in Europe. And they bought uh, other companies in Germany, in Switzerland before, and then they made an offer for a, the company of a friend of mine. And uh, this friend of mine said, I, I offered them, hey, you can choose whether you work, we work for the Italians or you. And he said, of course, please work for us. So we worked for them. And this Italian buyer was the most difficult and I would say the most unethical buyer of, of, all the, of possibly all of them that I've worked with. They basically try to, they, they try to squeeze us in many different ways. They try to divide and rule. So their investment banker was talking to me. He was talking to my client. He was telling my t- client to, to fire me. He was telling things to my client that were not true. Uh, he was telling him that I told him things that were not true. So there was a lot of uh, confusion created. But I enjoyed the total trust of my friend and my client. And he basically didn't listen to that guy. He kept, he was very polite with him. He didn't burn any bridges, but basically he trusted me and he accepted everything I taught him. And that allowed me to negotiate from a position of strength because I could not be intimidated by the by the buyer. I knew that I enjoyed the full trust of the seller and I could really be tough with that buyer and I could negotiate very tough. I could represent them and we, we played the good cup, bad cup in, in negotiations. My client was the good cup, I was the bad cup, but we were in totally in tune, in sync. And eventually we managed to close that deal uh, six months later. And, and this was a great deal because we saw the company at the peak. After that, the market started to decline and, and the buyer who actually mismanaged the business and who mistreated my client, who was going to be their partner uh, in the business. Luckily, we negotiated uh, that they were it was 100% bought out in the end. So he didn't suffer any financial loss and, uh, and he was very, very grateful and happy. And this the money that he received allowed him to start three new businesses and all those businesses are prospering right now. Whereas the buyer went out of business uh, two years later. So that was, uh, that was one example. So I have another example, but I don't want to uh, make this podcast too long. Basically, the uh, moral of the story, if you trust, uh, you know, pick an investment banker that you can trust. Do your due diligence, do your homework before you hire that investment banker. Don't, you know, wake up to not trusting that investment banker after you hire them because it's too late. So take references, sit down with them several times, make sure there's chemistry, make sure they have a high reputation, make sure they have a lot of experience. And uh, and if you have that, if you trust, uh, you know, if, if you pick someone that you can trust, then then trust them. And unless you find that they have, done anything which was dishonest or untowards. Obviously, there's no blank checks in this business. Uh, if you misunderstood, if you mis- misjudged someone, then, then you have to deal with that later. But I hope to think that, uh, that it is possible to vet your candidates and to pick someone that is really trustworthy, that's worthy of your trust, your confidence, who's got the competence, and then trust that person. Don't second-guess them. Don't try to be smarter than them in terms of M&A. Obviously, you can do your own research, 
but but trust that person and let them negotiate uh, on your behalf, and then you will get a much better result than if you second guess the other person. If you think you can get greedier than what your investment banker tells you, if you uh, you think you can renegotiate one one time too far, you're gonna get burned. So that are my little stories for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for being such a faithful listener. If you have a question, please tweet it to Ask Succession Steve, hashtag Ask Succession Steve, or just email it to me, steve at entrepcoaches.com. And I look forward to talking to you again in a couple of days. And in the meantime, remember, your succession is success. Thank you for listening to the Succession Secrets Podcast. Make sure you check out SuccessionSecrets.com for archive podcasts and transcripts and IntrepCoaches.com. That's E-N-T-R-E-P Coaches.com to download your free copy of the Your Terms newsletter. <laughs> <laughs>